Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to this week's edition of Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's stories take us from the skies with Bomber Command in the company of a mad Dane, through defying the Nazis from within and suffering the terrible consequences, to the life of children under German occupation, and seeing one of Hitler's right-hand men behind bars. This week, we start with this story from Andrew Panton, of the Lincolnshire Aviation Heritage Centre. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I'm sat here on Remembrance Day in isolation and thought I would share the story of my great-uncle Chris, a flight engineer with Bomber Command on Halifax's out of Skipton-on-Swale. Pilot Officer Christopher Panton joined the crew of Pilot Officer Christian Nielsen at the Heavy Conversion Unit in the final stages of training before becoming operational. The crew went straight over to 405 Squadron and joined the Pathfinders at Gransden Lodge to start operations. They were mainly made up of our Commonwealth cousins, with four of the seven coming from Canada. The mid-upper gunner was from Belfast and Chrissy was from Lincolnshire. The pilot, however, was an intriguing character. Christian Nielsen was a young man of Danish descent living in New York. Nielsen travelled to Canada to enlist in the Royal Canadian Air Force before America joined the war. During his time flying heavy bombers, he gained quite a reputation and was known as the Mad Dane. The Halifax they flew was N for nuts, and it was christened Nielsen's Nuthouse. The crew's time at 405 Squadron came to an abrupt end. The story goes they were removed from the squadron because they turned back from an operation, as their ASI was not indicating. It turned out that the pitot cover had been left on. They were told there's no room for error on Pathfinders. After 11 operations with 405 Squadron and a further four on 419 Squadron, the crew joined 433 Squadron as it moved to a new airfield at Skipton-on-Swale, North Yorkshire. The airfield lies in the shadow of Sutton Bank, rising some 980 feet high above the North Yorkshire moors. The Nielsen crew made sure they picked the dispersal point closest to the end of the runway so that they did not waste fuel taxiing before the op. Nielsen was seemingly one for pushing the rules, Normal practice was to take off and gain height in the circuit over the airfield before setting course for the target. But Nielsen didn't bother with that. He decided to conserve fuel by setting course straight away and gaining height on the outward leg. This, of course, meant he would likely be early over the target. On one operation, they were reportedly so early reaching the target that they chose to go and beat up Berlin to use up some time. There was one incident that was reported in the Maple Leaf, the Canadian Forces magazine. The crew took off towards Sutton Bank when the aircraft lost hydraulic power, stopping the wheels, flaps and bomb doors from closing. The increased drag hindered the aircraft from climbing, so it was heading straight for the bank. While Nielsen battled with the aircraft, he ordered Chrissy to manually pump up the landing gear with the aircraft's hand pump, a huge task given the size of the hydraulic rams and the number of pumps required. The aircraft rose just in time to clear the bank. 
Nielsen was heard to calmly proclaim, It's okay, Jesus. I've got it. After 24 complete operations, the crew were sadly lost on their 25th. They had completed two operations to Italy, four trips to Berlin, one mining operation laying sea mines, and 16 further nighttime operations flying through the Battle of Berlin period. The crew of Halifax HX-272 were shot down on the 31st of March, 1944, while taking part in the famous Nuremberg Raid. They fell victim to a night fighter flown by Robert Ludica and caught fire in the attack. The crew was ordered to bail out, and the wireless operator and rear gunner parachuted out. The aircraft blew up, and Nielsen was blown out of the aircraft. It is thought that Nielsen's parachute ripcord must have snagged on the aircraft as he was blown out because he woke up on snow-covered ground in a churchyard, unharmed, just a bit battered and bruised. The other five members of the crew were killed in the crash and share a grave in a beautiful spot in the Dernbach War Cemetery. The wireless operator recorded his disbelief that Chrissy did not make it out of the aircraft because he was just behind him at the escape hatch. Chrissy was the second oldest of eight children. His loss had an enormous effect on the family as his younger brothers really looked up to him. Fred and Harold Panton, his youngest brothers, recall the day the telegram arrived. It was delivered by Fred's school friend, and as soon as Fred saw him coming down the garden path, he knew exactly what was coming. Harold used to run between a line of trees, and had convinced himself that if he could run between two trees within a set time, then Chrissy would still be alive. We luckily have many of the letters that Chrissy wrote home during his service. He would always just sign off, Love, Chrissy. However, on the last one, he signed off with nine kisses, one for each of the family. It has to be wondered if he knew he wouldn't be coming back. For many years after the war, Chrissy's father wanted nothing more to do with the war, and the family didn't even know where he was buried. Fred didn't lose any interest in Bomber Command, and as the war ended, the family worked with the Ministry of Works, dismantling huts from the airfields. Fred wanted the family to purchase a Halifax from the wartime surplus and bring it to sit on their farm. He could have had one for £100 and had the choice of a brand new one or one that had flown on operations. Fred's father wouldn't hear of it and his final say on the matter was you're not bringing one of those mucky things here. Then one day in the early 70s out of the blue Fred's father asked him to get off to Germany and find Chrissy. Fred couldn't get away fast enough and eventually managed to find the crash site and Chrissy's grave at Dernbach. Fred returned and framed his photos so that his father could see them from his easy chair in the lounge. Fred and Harold's father passed away just a few weeks later. Fred and Harold were determined to create a lasting memorial to their older brother, and they eventually managed to buy a Lancaster and a wartime airfield. Their efforts created the Lincolnshire Aviation Heritage Centre, a living memorial to our Chris and all of Bomber Command. Regards, Andrew Panton. Our next story comes from Colin Bottoms. Hi, Alan James. I've been thinking about sending you this story for some time now, but have hesitated because it's about my ex's stepfather, Carl Jung, and I wasn't sure whether it was my story to tell. But I decided that his story illustrates an aspect of war that is often overlooked and unknown, especially in the English-speaking world, and deserves to be told. I hope you'll think so too. As you may guess from his name, Carl Jung was German. 
He was born in 1901 in a small working-class town near Frankfurt am Main. As a teenager during the First World War, he longed to join the Imperial Navy, but was too young for any kind of service. In about 1920, he joined the Social Democratic Party of Germany, the SPD, and became politically active and a pacifist from then on until the end of his life, over 80 years later. During the Weimar Republic, and more especially after 1933, he was deeply involved in the struggle against right-wing extremism, and Nazism in particular. This didn't stop when Hitler came to power, and all political parties were banned. Karl took part in clandestine meetings and activities, and was seen as a person of interest to the SD and the police. He was arrested and roughed up on numerous occasions. After one round-up, he was sent on the locally infamous March to the Hochst Barracks, during which political opponents of the Nazis were detained for several days, beaten up and generally mistreated. This was something that was still illegal at the time, but obviously tolerated and even encouraged by the authorities. It was a precursor of what was to come later in the concentration camps. Karl worked at a chemical plant, part of the IG Farben conglomerate, and was taken from work on several occasions for questioning. His family home, where he lived with his parents and sister, was also raided several times. Nevertheless, Karl continued his clandestine activity even after the war started, and he was declared Verunverdig, not worthy to serve in the military. He was required to report regularly to the local police station and submit to many other forms of humiliation. One of his regular clandestine tasks was to pick up newsletters and pamphlets authored by the SPD executive in exile in Prague, smuggled into Germany and pass them along the distribution chain. One evening, the inevitable happened. He was arrested carrying leaflets in the basket of his bike and brought to trial, a process that again involved a lot of violence against his person. He was initially condemned to death, but then reprieved and press-ganged into the penal 999th Division of the Wehrmacht, in which death was a constant possibility, either through enemy action or, frequently enough, through summary execution for the slightest reason. As a political, he was the lowest of the low, subject to the brutality and sadism of the hard-nosed criminals who made up the NCO ranks and the callousness of the officer corps who were often sent to the division in disgrace. The division was considered totally expendable and nobody expected to survive. He ended up in Greece on the island of Lesvos where he and his comrades laid landmines, a task that cost many lives. With the Allies on the advance, his unit took part in the withdrawal through the Balkans towards Austria. They were always the rearguard of the rearguard, left in the most extreme and exposed positions, under constant attack and harrying by both regular troops and partisans, starving, freezing cold and suffering brutality at the hands of their own superiors. Their mission was simply to die while slowing the enemy's advance. They could expect no quarter from the enemy, Partisans took no prisoners, and if the enemy didn't get you, your own people almost certainly would, simply for having retreated. Eventually, Karl made it back to Austria as one of only a handful of survivors from his unit, and as the war dragged itself to its conclusion, he managed to desert in order to avoid one more last-ditch action ordered by fanatical commanders. He got away and was picked up by US troops in Bavaria and eventually released back into civilian life in Frankfurt, where he remained active in local politics for many years to come. 
His experiences were so horrendous that he suffered the most terrifying nightmares for the rest of his life and would wake up almost nightly screaming with fear and panic. This continued even through the dementia in his final years and right up until his death, just 10 days before his 100th birthday. Carl received late acknowledgement of his active resistance to the Nazi regime when he was in the first group of people to be awarded the Johanna Kirchner Medal of the City of Frankfurt in 1991 at the age of 90. Shortly before his death, he was also honoured by the SPD for 80 years of unbroken membership, a most unusual feat even in normal times, let alone when it covered the 12 years of Nazi rule. Carl Jung was not a high-profile opponent of the Hitler regime. He was a small, unassuming cog within the socialist resistance, who stuck steadfastly to his principles of honesty, equality and social responsibility. But he is a fine example of courage and a necessary reminder that even in Germany's darkest hours, there were still beacons of right-mindedness in the fog of nationalistic depravity. His sufferings during the war and in the subsequent 55 years of trauma caused by his wartime experiences are a vivid example of the horrors of war. Keep up the good work. Colin. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Our next story comes today from Eric Rube. Good morning, gentlemen. I write to you from Jersey, where my father-in-law lived during the occupation. He lived on the north coast and remembers the planes going towards Normandy for D-Day. They woke up and went outside to see the sky in the distance light up. 
They lived near a work camp full of Russian prisoners of war who were building the Atlantic Wall. During the later parts of the war, the island ran very short of food, so the Germans let the prisoners out at night to forage for food. Cows had to be kept indoors, otherwise farmers would find them dry by the morning. Dad's family would leave some food out for the Russians as they were starving. When liberation happened, one of the Russians came to see the family and he measured their fingers with a piece of string. He came back a few days later with beautiful rings for each person to say thanks for saving his life. They still have these rings made from copper pipe. The family also had a hidden crystal radio set to listen to the BBC. However, it ran on a battery and the battery needed charging. So my father-in-law and his sister were sent off with the pram with the battery hidden in it to the neighbour's farm to have it recharged. I myself am Dutch and my grandfather was in the Dutch army. He ended up as a prisoner of war so my grandmother was left alone with her son and daughter. The Germans were rounding up all the young men in Holland and carting them off to Germany to work in the factories. Once they were at a railway station when such a raid was happening and my father was captured. My gran, a tiny lady, was so angry that she pushed the Germans out of the way, telling them, you stupid Germans, you cannot take my son. She grabbed Dad and pushed their way out through the crowd, which closed up behind them to stop the Germans going after them. Dad had to hide for the rest of the war, living in cellars and secret places. The occupation touched all sides of my family. My maternal grandfather, a doctor, had his surgery on the ground floor. A German commandant billeted above it in his house, while for a time hiding a Jewish family in the cellar. Kind regards, Eric Rube. The next story is from Andrew Aykroyd. After my dad joined the RAF, he was sent to RAF Bruggen on the German-Dutch border as a medical officer. At that time, not long after the war, the occupying powers would rotate the doctors at Spandau Prison in Berlin to treat Rudolf Hess. Now it was the British turn to provide a medical officer. An army major based in Germany was due to go, but he, allegedly, had too much to drink at a mess function and was sent back to the UK in disgrace. In his place, Dad was ordered to Berlin. He and my mum made the journey to Berlin from West Germany by road via Checkpoint Bravo. His recollections of Hess were that he was extremely frail. He had a whole floor of the building to himself, the prison staff having removed some of the dividing walls. Dad remembers him having daily newspapers in several different languages laid out on his table. But he was quite brusque, which I think Dad found a bit of a challenge. My favourite story of Dad's time in Cold War East Berlin is him deciding to wander off on his own to do some Third Reich sightseeing. He was tailed the whole time, and the moment he left his specified route, a chap with a gun leapt out of a bush and suggested he think again. Dad said he was very sorry and was only trying to find Hitler's bunker. Best wishes, Andrew Aykroyd. Our final story this week is from Madeline Johnson. This isn't one of those dramatic or inspiring incidents that I enjoy hearing on We Have Ways Family Stories, but a quieter one for reflection, one of those human moments. My father was rushed through medical school after Pearl Harbour. He had already been in the Navy ROTC, so as soon as he could he was commissioned as a medical officer in the Navy. Coincidentally, while studying in Chicago, he'd actually seen the ship he was assigned to being built by the Pullman Railroad Car Company in their Southside Yard. It was small, 
designed as a rescue ship. He went on its maiden voyage from New Orleans through the Panama Canal and into the Pacific. As I said, it was a tiny ship and was later converted for communications. As such, it ended up being the first American ship into Manila and then Tokyo. The ship was in the battles of Leyte Gulf and then Lingayen. Dad was not big on psychiatry, all that blaming things on your parents or being toilet trained too early. Nevertheless, during a break in the action, when they were near an aircraft carrier that had a full medical staff, Dad actually sought out a psychiatrist. He told the psychiatrist that he did not think he could stand to see another beautiful, healthy young man's body mangled or destroyed. Am I crazy if I am this upset? He asked the psychiatrist. No, the psychiatrist told him. You'd be crazy if you weren't. Best wishes. Madeleine Johnson. That's it for Family Stories this week. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com. That's wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com. Or leave it on the members site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Bye for now.